was listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Brzezinski speaking. Welcome to episode 37 of the Love That Album podcast. Good to have your company. And this time around, I'm really very particularly excited. And I mean, I always say that, but no, this time I really, 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 really am. Um, Two months ago, I discovered a podcast courtesy of a Facebook note from Ben Folds, who just said that he'd been on a podcast called Soda Jerker on songwriting, and he he and the whole group had been guests, and they were all asked about their songwriting, not just about hey, what's it like to be performing again and that sort of stuff, but actually delving into the way how the guys think about songwriting and arranging. And so I thought, well, this is curious. I want to hear anything that's got to do with Ben Folds, but let's see what this podcast is like in general. And I fell in love with it. And the reason why I'm very excited is within just a short period of time, I've managed to ask and been successful in acquiring the commentary, the services, the input, the thoughts of the Soda Jerker on songwriting team, Brian and Simon. Welcome very much to love that album, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I was planning all this week. I should be saying I've got some songwriters from Liverpool on the other hand, but I think, yeah, well, you know, that'd just be a little bit corny. But um, <laughs> before we get into talking, oh, I should actually mention that the um, album of uh, today we're going to be tackling is really an all-time favourite. When I say all-time, I really mean just in the last five years because that's when I discovered it. But if I discovered it when I was five years old, like I should have, um, it would be the Zombies album, Odyssey and Oracle. Um, I I suggested this to the guys and straight away they were up for it. So, uh, look, welcome to the show, guys. Before we start talking about the album, um, just give us a little bit of a background about your work as songwriters and how you came to do the podcast. Well, uh, we met at school originally, and uh, we started playing in bands together, as you do when you're at school. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, we we basically went on from there to uh, tour the UK. We released an album ourselves on our own label, um, got some good, you know, national coverage and stuff like that. Um, and then just at the point, really, when that band was really going somewhere, it all sort of fell apart, and and uh, not for any sort of. Uh, uh, bad reasons but really just because we'd reached that point in our lives where everyone was sort of moving on and and doing other things and so um brian and i can can carried on writing songs together and uh, we built up quite an archive of material so we sort of regarded ourselves as a songwriting team most people uh, always gave us feedback on the songs that we'd written as when we were in a band anyway that was the thing that people seemed to enjoy the most and then from there we thought well you know, it would be really nice to get the word out in a different way than just sort of playing gigs and stuff like that. Um, maybe there's a way that we can actually talk about this craft that we're so interested in. And so we looked online for a podcast about songwriting and we couldn't really find one. So, yeah, from there we decided 
well, you know, let's let's see. Let's talk about our own process on this podcast. And at some point we thought, well, what would it be like if we could actually talk to other people about their process? And we thought, well, we, right. could, we could surely we couldn't really get any of these people to take part. So we just fired off a few emails and tried with a few people and we got a few yeses back. And from there, we haven't really looked back. And please, you should mention some of the people who you've had on the show because we're not just talking about new and developing songwriters. We're talking about you know, people who've been really instrumental in creating um, you know, the great music of uh, the, the 20th century, really, in, in popular terms at least anyway. Yeah, we've had a, a pretty good uh, run of names. Um, I mean, our second ever episode was with Todd Rundgren. Um, which was pretty amazing that was when we, we figured we were on the right track yeah you should have seen the text message I sent to him when we got that yes yeah um, <laughs> there's been Jimmy, Jimmy Webb uh, Neil Sedaka uh, Weird Al Yankovic um, who else have we had this is where my eye draw a blank Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil Mike um, Stoller Andy Partridge mm-hmm. um, Al Jarreau Carol Bayer Sega yeah a whole variety of people the galaxy of stars <laughs> Incre- and, and well, certainly a galaxy of stars in terms of you know people who um, you know, really shaped the way how we hear music, and, and for you know people like yourself. I mean, really, what you're what you're doing here is you know you've gone and created like a university of songwriting. And, and, and let me ask you, having spoken to any of these people, has it gone and changed the way how you think about your own songwriting? Well, it's funny you should say that actually because. Um since we've spoken to these people, we do feel like we've been on some kind of intensive masterclass for the past year. And yep. um, hearing the different ways that these people approach songwriting, some will start with a title, others <laughs> will start with a melody. Some will say, you know, a title is the worst way to start. Others will say, I can't start unless I've got a great title. And you think, God, there is literally, you know, a myriad of ways that you can approach this art form. And, um, yeah, it, we've we've st- since started to reflect on the way that we write, and also like the next thing that we're going to be doing, we've we've got a batch of songs, and we're going to be doing them in a much more stripped down sort of singer songwriterly, honest, back to the piano and vocal kind of you know right. way, and and that I think has been really influenced by the sort of approach of a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. I think the the biggest <laughs> biggest impact on us really is is in terms of quality control. You know, you obviously we, we do a lot of research for the interviews and stuff, and so we, we we've heard the vast back, back catalogues of, of a lot of these amazing writers, and you know it it really is a masterclass in, in songwriting. So you you then go back to your own work and approach it from a de- very different perspective than you did before. You know, um, so we're we're a lot stricter, a lot more brutal yeah. on ourselves. We don't we don't settle for, you know. Mediocrity. <laughs> Not that we did before, but you know, you really do scrutinise your work a lot more. Having having spoke to these people and, and heard how they go about their process, it really does make you address your own work very, very differently. And have any of uh, the people who you've interviewed heard your work? Did did they say, "Oh, we looked on the website and we saw that there was some um, some downloadable songs, and we had to listen to that as well"? I mean, have you had any feedback about that or, yeah, or spoke we, about? We had a really nice response from Jackie DeShannon, didn't we? Yeah. She listened to uh, the music, and she listened to one song in particular, which she said was a bona fide smash. So we were thrilled. <laughs> we were thrilled to get that feedback from her from a Grammy winner. Wow, yeah. not bad. Fantastic. All right. Look. Anyway, what we'll do now is we'll go take a quick break, and when we come back, um, we'll be discussing today's album under question. 
uh, Odyssey and Oracle by the Zombies. And later on in the show, uh, Eric Reanimator is back as usual with his segment, An Album I Love. And this time he's gone for, um, uh, I don't know if it's the first album, but it's the self-titled album from the band Hawkwind. Um, so uh, that'll be coming on later on in the show. But uh, anyway, let's take a quick break and uh, we'll be back very shortly with um, the guys from Soda Joker talking about the Zombies Odyssey and Oracle. You're listening to Love That Album. Otto Preminger presents Bunny Leg is Missing. What suspense? Oh. Lawrence Olivier is immense. I just want to find one simple thing. One small, simple proof that Bunny Lake exists. Come on time! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! The zombies are there! That's us! That's me! That's him! That's he! Carol Lindley is keen as a knife. Care Delay will give you the time of your life. Come on time! Come on time for the show! The clock will tell you when to go! While the show's on, can you get in? No! Come on time! Please come on time. And we're back from break. Morris here in Melbourne. Soda Joker, that is Simon and Brian over there in Liverpool. I think, actually, apart from an interview that I did with uh, Tristan Fry, the drummer of Sky, you're probably the first guys I've had from uh, the UK on the show. So, um, welcome on. This is uh, very, very exciting. Anyway, as I said, we're discussing the album Odyssey and Oracle by the Zombies. And I'd like to ask you guys, first of all, what are your first memories of uh, having heard the album? <clears throat> well, you know, I wish I had a fantastic story about that. But I honestly, I was racking my brains to try and think of the first moments I heard the record. And I just could not find when it was. And there are other albums for which I have very clear memories. But I think it must have come via Brian. And and I think he he kind of remembers how he found it. Yeah, I think I was just. I mean, I'm. I love these sorts of reference guides. You know, a thousand and one albums you must listen to before you die. Those kind of things. You know, and there's one I had right. by Mojo Magazine, the, the British music magazine. Yep. And uh, just you know, best albums of the 20th century, whatever it was. And I think it was there was an entry for Odyssey and Oracle in there, and um, I was suitably piqued by it. So I um got hold of a copy and uh, it was pretty instantaneous the uh, the impact really uh, just blown away by it and then uh, yeah mm. i think i passed it on to on to Cy shortly afterwards and from there i became suitably enchanted <laughs> <laughs> well, I rem- it's interesting you mentioned mojo because i think it was about five years ago i was about to go away on a uh, family holiday and as i like to do you know load up on uh, all the uh, great um, music magazines and i think at the time uh, the latest editions of both Mojo and Uncut had come out with articles about the Zombies reunion. Um, they they uh, got together to perform at least all of them, minus Paul Atkinson, who I think passed away maybe about five six years ago. But um, the, uh, uh, the the rest of the band um, had, had reformed to play Odyssey and Oracle because it's this whole story that they recorded the album and then split up straight away but um anyway so this article was you know speaking to all of them and you know when they mentioned words like you know, or beach boys lush harmonies i thought right that's it i'm gonna go out and search yeah. <laughs> search this out this sounds I think that was fantastic what, i think that was what drew me in actually as well yeah 
because I'm a big, mm. big Beach Boys fan. Yeah, uh, I, I remember. Um, I, I think I went went to uh, Amazon, and they had Zombie Heaven going for eighteen dollars. So right. the the four the four CD box set. There's got to be a mistake. Yeah, but that, that's an incredibly good price for that because that's that's the, was, the Ace Records compilation, isn't it? With which is just like very very. I don't, expensive. I don't think it's. I don't think. It's, yeah. Well, look, I've, I've seen it in stores. You know, going for over a hundred dollars, but uh, I thought. 18, and Odyssey and Oracle by itself was 15. I thought it was a no-brainer, even if the rest of it is no good, then, you know, uh, well, I'll get a few extra songs. I mean, hell, I get Odyssey and Oracle and I get She's Not There, <laughs> and um, I've got my $18 value right there. But fortunately, it's chock full of great gems. But I did find myself, for the first six months, just coming back to Odyssey and Oracle. I drove my family nuts, all except my daughter, I think. My daughter, who... Um, you know, her her uh, musical tastes are, uh, shall we say, questionable, uh, but <laughs> but it became our thing. That was our album, you know, um, and we played that over and over and over again. And I hadn't done that in in years, you know. I find a new album, I listen to it, love it, put it aside, come back to it, you know, a little while later. But this was, I just became obsessive. Uh, either of you found you did that for a little while, or oh yeah, it was definitely something I had on high rotation. Um, and it's it's a strange album in the sense that it kind of just washes over me. A lot of times I, I start off trying to concentrate on each individual song, but I find myself sort of at the sort of 25-minute mark having not really paid that much attention in any kind of intricate way. I'm just sort of enveloped Messed, in this yeah. world. It's very strange. Right. Um, so let me let me ask you just one more question before we go into um, track by track. Uh, what... Do you see necessary? Do you see that the strengths here on this album, and we'll probably delve further into this as we go through the songs. Do you think that it's uh, the songs themselves that are clever, or they owe as much to the arrangements? Could these songs have been done? Could you have you know, like neglected these songs in the hands of lesser arrangers? Um, certain songs. Um, I think would stand, you know, something like um, This Will Be Our Year, you know, you could sit down just at a piano and play that song and you could hear what a good song it is. There's other ones like, say, Changes, which is very much an arrangement and a production, um, you know, uh, that I don't think will come off so well if you try to play it on an acoustic guitar, for example. Mm-hmm. So right. it's, kind of a, it's kind of a combination of the two. It's, it's pure songwriting. And also some some clever but but tasteful arrangements and, and production, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Look, I I think I'd have to agree with you on uh, on that one. And um, I mean, oh, there there are some there are some songs I've heard, not anything from this album, where I, I think I recall hearing there was a tribute to Doc Pomus, and um, uh, Sean Colvin did her arrangement or did her version of Viva Las Vegas, a song which I've loathed all my life, and. <laughs> But when she does it, it's you know there's it's slow, uh, there's brushes, there's um, you know, a, a mournful guitar, there's harmonica playing on the back, and it's a song who uh, from someone who's saying "Viva Las Vegas" in a totally ironic fashion, and this is someone you know, this is someone who's lost their shirt, um, uh, they've gambled it all away. So I thought the arrangement there was it, all of a sudden it brought out this that this song was brilliant. Um, and that's why I wanted to ask you whether you thought, you know, can, is a good song always a good song or does it take sometimes a, a good arrangement to do it? But 
I mean, I'm sure there are some songs which, uh, you know, you can't do anything with, but uh, do you see that differently or? Well, I mean, there are a lot of characteristics that come out of the way that the zombies actually play and perform. I think that are so perfectly captured on that record as a marriage between, you know, the music and them that um, you wouldn't get if, if other artists covered them. You know, the way that Colin Blundstone sings, for example, the way that right. Rod Argent plays, these are, are unique characteristics that serve these songs so perfectly. Um, and I think, you know, th- of course, there are other people who could interpret these tunes well, but that, that album as a whole is just so consistent and so coherent in its vision and in the way it's it's being, you know, conceived that um, uh, there are there are a few competitors, and we were talking about where it stands in in music in general, and and the fact that they recorded it just after the Beatles had recorded Sgt. Pepper, and mm-hmm. um, it, it, for us it stands as as a in, as a better album. Really, it's just yeah. simply more coherent. That's it. I mean, the, you know, the, yes. the the big moments on Pepper are, are kind of magisterial, and you know, it's hard to touch them. But as a as a cohesive piece of work. You could argue Pepper is maybe a little bit it's bitty, there's some filler here and there, but it's bookended yes. by these these great sorts of songs, you know. And and there's obviously great songs scattered throughout, but with, with uh, Odyssey, it just doesn't really put a, a foot wrong. It just feels like a unified thing, you know. In fact the only point at which it does start to tail off is at the very end when you get to time of the season and whilst that's a wonderful song. It, it doesn't quite fit with that set yeah. in, in some ways. It's probably the one song you could maybe lose, um, no disrespect to the song, but you could lose it from the end of the album and the album wouldn't necessarily suffer for it stylistically, you know. Well, we'll come, we'll come back to, um, to that because, yeah, I, I did want to make a point about that. We'll come when we get to that song. Uh, just, I, I guess, final thing I wanted to say, it's interesting you mentioned about the Beatles and, you know, the Beatles had – was it, you know, 13 or so albums to get from Please Please Me to, well, we'll say Abbey Road, really, because that was the last thing they recorded, um, if not what they released. And basically, the zombies went from Please Please Me to Abbey Road in two records. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, yeah. it's a fair observation, I think, yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, I think... All right. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say it in... No, go on. In the Beatles' terms... I mean, I think they always had it in the the locker. Certainly, uh, McCartney. You know, he wrote "When I'm 64" when he was like 16. You know, so <laughs> I think he he always that he always had that sort of musical side, that sophisticated, old fashioned sense of songwriting. But it didn't really come out it, sort of in earnest until maybe Revolver, Pepper. Um, so yeah, maybe it took a few albums for them to show that side. But maybe it was always something that was lurking there. You know. Mm. All right, let's uh, get into talking about the album itself. Um, so we'll start talking about uh, the first song of the album, uh, Care of Cell 44. Here's a clip. This song exemplifies 
everything that I love about the album because really in a lot of ways it's a it's a dark album presented in a sweet package you know you got honey surrounding what for the most part are some very dark and sad tales which you know we're, we're willing to take the medicine because it tastes so beautiful <laughs> I've, I've had people sort of you know write to me and say you know does it take all the joy out of an album just you know talking and analyzing each song and what you like about it can't you just listen to it and really the truth is you could listen to this album and you know just really take all the joy all the beauty out of it uh, or just listen, really take whatever you wanted out of it without ever sort of consciously thinking about the songs. But I really think that, especially over the last couple of weeks since I've been sort of thinking about all these songs and making a few notes, that I've really come to appreciate it all the better. So, look, before, yeah, so what, what are your thoughts? Okay, so, uh, Care of Soul 44, uh, you know, a, a, a tale uh, about you know, a guy writing a, a love letter to his girl and with uh, after the first few lines you realize, Hang on, she's in prison. He's writing to his girlfriend in prison. Who's done that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's probably my favourite song from the album. It just has that perfect blend, doesn't it, of uh, immediacy and uh, melody and arrangement, and it just it it just sets up the album so perfectly. Uh, as you said, it's a letter to a prisoner, um, and and the opening line is "Good morning to you." So immediately, you know, it, it's got that brilliant way of sort of starting that journey that you're going to go on with this record. Um, right. It sets up the listening experience. And then, of course, you know, it's peppered with so many beautiful phrases as well, like watching the laughter play around your eyes and, you know, train, nice. train, yep. train for money. It's just, mm. It just rolls off the tongue, you know. It's, it's beautiful. Mm. Uh, Brian, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just well, just really echoing <laughs> what Sai said. I mean, what a great title. You know, I remember when I first got the album and seeing that title, I was like, I didn't, because I had no context for it, I was like, Care of Cell 40, it seems so random. And obviously when you mm. hear it, it all becomes clear exactly what it's about. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's pretty much epitomizes what you say about, you know, that the sort of bittersweet nature of the album. You've got that sort of very nice motif that leads into the 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 vocals and you know it's just such a it's such a sweet a sweet package as you say but with this kind of you know darker center yeah mm. <laughs> like you no know, so go ahead They're just gonna say and the chorus for the track is just so huge because of the way that they arrange those vocals and right. uh, the, they they do that throughout the album don't they the not only do they layer those sorts of uh, Beach Boys influence sort of bomb bomb sorts of vocals but mm-hmm. they also have the huge R sounds in the choruses you know right throw that that, yep. that slight sort of discord in there as well in that sort of little harmony break there's a slightly odd note that they throw in which is I think very Brian Wilson esque yes yes I know I know it was a piano note right wasn't it yeah that's right yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, I've got to say that um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge sucker melodically for uh, songs with descending chord lines, and and you know this is this is one of those. And but normally they're they're like in a minor key, and here this is done in a major key, so it's a a little bit a little bit different. But I still found myself oh the hairs on the back of the neck uh, effect. And you know I I agree with you what you said. I mean I like the the build up. So we start off with you know just drums and piano, so this bare bones effect, and then you get this lead up to the chorus. Where uh, he's where Colin singing feels so good. You're coming home, and you got this ah ah ah. 
in the background and it just explodes. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really, you know, sort of palatable to the joy that this character is feeling. He's really looking forward to his girl coming home. We never know why she went to prison. Um, this is no Johnny Cash song. You know, you expect to hear, you know, a prison thing. It's going to be about, you know, someone who's gone and killed a man in Reno just to watch him die. But, you know, this is not about that. This is just about the joy of getting his loved one home and they're going to start again and it's just going to be absolutely perfect. Um, uh, you know, really, uh, Cash or, or Bruce Springsteen, you expect to, to hear that sort of thing, a, a prison song. Um, I, I also like, like what you mentioned, Simon, about, um, uh, it, 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 this song is full of little details. You know, uh, I saved you the room you used to stay in every Sunday, the one that is warmed by sunshine every day. It's it's the those are the sort of details you expect to read in a novel, not in a not in a three minute pop song. Uh, and I, I, for me, I think this is probably. Oh no, I was going to say it's Rod's finest moment on the album. I actually no, I think. The next song is Rod Rod Argent's moment, finest moment on the album. I should actually mention that. Yeah, the the, the song is the, the album is evenly divided up between the songs of uh, Rod Argent and Chris White, and probably at a pinch, I like the the Chris White song is a little bit better, but um, they're they're both fantastic, and, and certainly um, uh, between this and um, uh, a Rose for Emily, but we'll get onto that in a, a, a second. Um, I, I like the fact that this song is just that they had. They must have sort of sat around, had a bit of a laugh, thinking, let's talk about a relationship from a completely different perspective. I don't know. Is it someone on an oil rig? No, no. Uh, someone in a prison cell? Yes. You know, just, I like the fact they've taken just that little bit, that little bit of a, a different approach. I, I read somewhere someone had gone and made a comparison saying that this is this album's Wouldn't It Be Nice? Um, it, it sort of, Melodically, I mean, it, it's not it, it's not melodically the same. Although they're both major keys, but they're both songs that open up an album with such joy about the partner. I mean, it, it's not an uncommon thing, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Why? But do you see this as sort of like a good parallel to? Wouldn't it be nice? That's a good observation, actually. Yeah, I mean, the, the two songs start very similarly. I mean, in, in Cell Forty Four, you've got the the little sort of harpsichord motif, and then comes in with the drums and the voice and similarly with um wouldn't it be nice you've got that i think it's a little guitar arpeggio and just for a couple of bars and then bang into the you know into the main motif and yeah it's a very good very good observation mm. and it's also i mean i suppose you could say they're quite similar albums in in again that bittersweet nature very romantic and lush sounding and you know, beautiful chords, beautiful harmonies, but a lot, lot of sort of stuff about sort of heartbreak and yeah. There's you know. there's an overall sense of longing and aching throughout both of those records. Yeah, isn't absolutely. Okay, well, let's go on to now talk about the uh, the next song on the album, and, and this is certainly yeah, I, I think this is um, Rod's best on the album. I love love love. This is called A Rose for Emily. Let's hear a clip. The summer is here at last. The sky is overcast and no one brings a rose for Emily She watches her flowers grow While lovers come and go to give each other roses from her tree But not a rose for Emily Emily See, there's nothing you can do. There's 
So, I've got to ask you guys, how well read are you? Have you read the book by William Faulkner that this is allegedly inspired by, A Rose for Emily? I haven't, no. No, it's a size generally the, uh, the, the more... More literate of the two of us <laughs> in, in, in that sense. Um, I, I have terrible reading habits. Um, I read I read reference guides about classic albums. Um, yes. Exactly. So no, no, I'm not. I'm not familiar with the story. No. Uh, okay. Look, I I did a little bit of research about this, and so um. Okay. So this is a, apparently a story uh, set in America's South after the Civil War, uh, and there's this woman who can't adapt to the changing world. She can't find anyone to marry her because she's aristocracy and she won't marry beneath her station. Um, she meets someone who she becomes friendly with uh, who's you know not of her class, but she, uh, spoiler alert, murders him uh, and keeps him in her house. And the funeral is a big event in her town and she dies alone and everyone's sort of speaking about, oh, what, what happened to this guy? What happened? And then when they go to clear out her house after she's died, the corpse of the suitor is discovered decaying in her house and so it brings up all sorts of images of necrophilia and that sort of thing, which we don't talk about in a nice family podcast like this. Is that what they describe um, as Southern Gothic? Is that, is that the, the style I think he used to write, William Faulkner? Southern Gothic. So why doesn't this sound, so why doesn't this sound like the handsome family? Look, <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this song um, is basically... Um, uh, Rod Argent on the piano, he composed a song uh, with these absolutely beautiful Colin Blunstone vocals. I don't, did you watch the um, DVD or indeed attend the concert at Shepherd's Bush that um, when they did the reunion? Um, I didn't actually, the 40th anniversary one, no, but I, I did see them a couple of years before that. Um, okay. Yeah, they had, um, is it Jim and Steve Rodford? Uh, playing yes, with them yeah. on drums and bass, and uh, correct, yeah, it was it was fantastic. You know, uh, Blundstone had lost none of that tone with his voice, um, and of course, he's got that very interesting performance style where he kind of lifts his head and and uh, undulates his his neck and mouth and stuff like that. Um, and Rod Argent was just you know ridiculous on the keyboards. He's just an absolute beast of a player. Um, he is, yeah, and, and 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 it was fantastic, you know, to see them recreate some of the songs from Odyssey live. Uh, but uh, no, I didn't attend the uh, anniversary one. So why I wanted to ask you that was because, for mine, hearing um, Colin's vocals on this, if if anything, his vocals have become more breathy, more wistful, which really suits um, well all of these songs. But I think this song, in particular. Um, so I, I did. Did um, did they? Do you recall? Did they do this song at the uh, the show that you attended? I believe they did. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just I love everything how it's performed on the album, but two songs in particular, and I'll mention the next one when we get to it, that I think are done even better nowadays, uh, because in terms of in terms of uh, how the vocals go. Um, I remember having a discussion with a friend five years ago who I told I'd just discovered this album and um, he'd been a fan of the album for years and he said, oh, I'm so happy for you because, you know, you've at this age in your life, you've just gone and discovered this. This will become your new best friend. Cherish this moment. Remember the first time you heard it. Think about it. And really, this was... I listened to the album lots and lots of times, but I kept coming back to this and a couple of other songs um, 
uh, and it just really struck me once again the, the harmonies uh, and Colin's vocals and this sad, sad story. Uh, you know, great lyrics here. As the years go by, she will grow old and die. The roses in her garden fade away. And before I sort of knew about the novel, I was thinking about Miss Havisham from Great Expectations. I don't right. know if you know you did, but I had to suffer that in in uh, in high school. So, but but it, but that memory stayed about this about this old woman who, you know, really, you know, she she hadn't lived her life the way it was going to pan out. Um, uh, and yeah, and, and then there's that clever sort of uh, counter lyric, counter melody thing on. You wouldn't call it a chorus, I guess, but you know, the Emily can't. You see, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. There's loving everywhere, but none for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just. Um, is, I don't know. I, I'm just. I'm wondering. I mean, whether they took influence from the book or whether they decided to make their own story here. I'm wondering. You know, is Emily in the song being stubborn, refusing love? There's no indication of what her circumstances are, but it may well be the one from Faulkner's book. But I also see something of Eleanor Rigby well, in yeah, this story. Yeah, yeah. It definitely comes from the same school, doesn't it? That sort of Eleanor Rigby school of forgotten souls. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask you this: um, for for the two of you as songwriters, are there sort of uh, I I don't want to use a word progression, but I, I I can't find myself coming to anything. Are there standard sort of templates that maybe uh, that some songwriters will work with to or, or play around with to set a mood? I mean, like did a song like uh, "A Rose for Emily." Um, does it strike you that it's inspired or they were sort of following an exercise? Uh, Rod Arjun was following an exercise here in saying, all oh, right, we want to tell a sad tale. And so it's got to sound wistful or it's got to have this type of uh, musical pattern. I'm not sure if I'm making much sense here. Yeah, no, but I got what you're saying. Yeah, I think um, it would definitely seem to me that he's taken that, that sort of source material and, and, and sort of composed something inspired by that you know and i think i'm not sure how much like sort of classical training he had but i know he was a sort of he was in in choirs growing up and i think i get the sense he may have had some sort of classical training on the piano you know um, and right. so he probably had a good palette musical vocabulary to 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 draw from so you know he, he reads this sad story and it, it maybe conjures up a certain mood i think you also have to sort of have that synesthesia you know like a sort of a sentiment will will uh invoke a, a certain musical mood you know what i mean and maybe he's right. able to tap into that that's that's the sense i get from from listening to it and the colors are really rich throughout the whole album aren't they i mean there's a lot of references throughout to seasons and uh, you know, autumn and winter and changing colors yes. like to brown and, and these sorts of very rich, earthy kinds of colors. Um, and I think that, you know, as Brian says, it's, it's, it's his ability, their ability to marry, um, these sorts of wistful romantic ideas with this sort of pseudo classical medieval, almost baroque kind of, um, musical phrases with Argent adding all these different motifs underneath uh, for, for like the tack piano or the harpsichord or whatever else yeah. they choose to use that gives it this just this constant flavor of of a very English but very romantic kind of very much so very much so yeah 
All right, let's um, move on to uh, the next song from the album. Uh, and this sort of completes the uh, holy trinity of what the hell have I just heard songs opening up the album. This is uh, the first Chris White contribution to the, to the record. It's called Maybe After He's Gone. She told me she loved me With words as soft as morning rain But the light that fell upon me Turned to shadow when he came Maybe after he's gone She'll come back, love me So the first time I heard this, my initial emotion was sadness, and then I sort of found myself in a way maybe getting a little bit angry, because this ostensibly is a song about a guy who's really, he's a puppy dog. Um, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's been happy, he's, he's had this relationship with this girl, and then some guys come along and... Um, basically, she said, oh, oh, thanks very much. It's been nice. I'm going off with this bloke. And he's, the, the gist of it is in this song, the guy said, well, look, you know, maybe after he leaves, you know, you know, you'll take me back again. And, you know, you, you just sort of think, grow yourself a pair of balls, you know, move on. What is, what are you thinking? And then I sort of, I, this is something I, I guess I wanted to ask you guys is, Thematically, I mean, okay, so like nowadays, the trend is for, you know, a lot of breakup songs or songwriters to say, right, we had our thing, I'm moving on, screw you. But at the time, there was always songs about, oh, babe, how could you leave me? I'm really, really sad. So is this, I mean, do you think that Chris White sort of didn't sort of take that angle about I, I want to show you this really ironic song where I want you to get angry at this guy for not having um, not having the, uh, the the self-respect to just say right I've had enough of you I'm moving on or do you think this is just typical of 60s songs uh, she's left me my baby gone done make me sad but in, in a slightly more songwritery clever way um I'm not sure that it's intended to make us angry at the person, really. I think it's probably a, just a portrait of someone who's resigned to being the second choice. You know? But that's but that's the thing. I don't think he's well. <laughs> maybe uh, I don't know if is is resigned resigned the word. I mean, I, I but he's he's living with this delusion that well, you know, once once he's got yeah, okay, so he's the second choice. Yeah, yeah, okay, so fair point. But he's 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 thinking. Well, I'll I'll, I'll hang around. I'm not going to try for anyone else because you know you were the one, uh, and I'll just sort of wait in turn till you till you come back after he's gone because inevitable he's a hound and he'll find someone else and then you know you'll come back and see what a good thing you had in me. Oh no! But actually, no. He he has no self esteem. He wouldn't even deign to think that. But yeah, no. I, I just found myself getting 
really annoyed at the character, not annoyed at the song, because I think, you know, it's absolutely um, a, a, a brilliantly composed song. Um, and it's another sort of descending, well, slightly descending uh, chord line, but it, once again, in, but this time in a, a minor key. And, and it just, yeah, so it brings in images of sadness, but just when it gets to that chorus, I think, no, don't say that. But that's anger at the character, not anger at Chris White for having taken that approach. Of course, unless Chris White is thinking, no, you're supposed to feel sad for him, and you know, really, maybe his baby will come back to him after um, after this uh, guy's gone and uh, you know, gone off to his next conquest. And I just was wondering you know, if you thought there was like a '60s songwritery sort of thing. I don't know. I can't think of other examples of a song that that takes quite that that approach i think it's quite an un- untypical song in that sense it's also i mean just incidentally like a perfect marriage of of music and and lyric you know those sort of downbeat verses and then when he sort of g's himself up you've got that very optimistic uh you know sort of major sound and chorus you know but yeah i think mm. to be honest if, if it's if you're having that sort of visceral reaction to it then it's it's probably a successful song if you, you could look at it that way you know it's 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 pushing sort of certain buttons within you to react yes. that way to the to the protagonist you know so in that in that sense you could say it's quite a successful lyric oh definitely definitely a successful lyric uh and and, and a, a melody which you just sort of think why the hell could i have not written that um well uh what, what was the other point um uh, oh, look, anyway, look, oh, so yes, yes, that was, yeah, that was the thing I wanted to say was this song and f- quite a few other songs on the album are very, um, cinematic, I guess, in how, uh, they present themselves because the, the lyrics, they're, they're using very simple language, you're not trying to be overly ornate, but it's the right words for the right story. And you, you, you get the opening lines of the, of the song, she told me she loved me with words as soft as morning rain, but the light that fell upon me turned to shadow when he came. And boom, I've got this picture in my head. I know what he looks like. I know what he's doing. And, and you, you can just, you can just see that you know, Chris White and Rod Argent are such great storytellers. And you can picture this all in your head. Um, very, very cinematic. At least that's, yeah, that's how I see it. I mean, does that, does that strike you? Did, did you ever think about it? And for that matter, in a general sense, outside of the zombies, are you guys attracted to uh, the sort of songwriters who you can picture the characters in your head or do you just let this, uh, the song itself tell its story regardless of whether you can um, picture what they're doing? Um, I think I'm always a fan of people who can conjure imagery with the, their choice of lyrics. Um, and uh, I mean... It, it, you say it's cinematic, and I'm sure that's helped in no small part by the arrangements as well, like that a cappella vocal end yes. that they've got, where you know it has very much the, that sort of flavour of Argent sort of plagal cadences, you know, where he sort of resolves these sorts of chords. Um, yes, which is always lovely to to hear, and and definitely moves me in a kind of a cinematic way. But yeah, I mean, in terms of songwriters generally, you know, we had Neil Sedaka on our podcast, and he talk, yes. he talked about how he was fascinated by painting pictures, you know, and imagery, and talking about frozen pennies in the stream, and all of these sort of beautiful phrases that he'd come up with on his new album. And um, yeah, so for us, that the, those were the things that we took from it and mentioned to him when we talked to him. So I think we are attracted to that generally. Yeah. So Telly, do you think that um, 
maybe I'm just just not listening enough to 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 enough of the right songwriters from today. But um, do you think there's something of a lost art with the classic school of lyric writing? So you know, ones where they like you, you, what you mentioned about what Neil Sedaka went and wrote, or you know, what lyricists like Hal David would write, or you know, maybe songwriters from you know, before the pop era where uh, clever lyricism was was really as important as the melody and it was like a technical exercise you know you're going nine to five to a job to write songs it wasn't like the pop thing of oh i got inspired i just it came to me in three minutes no it was something that they worked out and it made the difference one word between a song being right and not being right do you think there are people today who still approach lyric writing in that fashion i mean out of the contemporary ones i'm not talking about the older ones who are still composing but do you think there are any lyricists today who strike you as i bet he sort of has crafted that for that song for days on end trying to think of specific examples i mean i don't think it's it's necessarily a a lost start i'm sure there's there's plenty of songwriters who do it maybe not so many in in the mainstream pop field you know back in the you know the early 60s you had those those brill building writers who seemed to marry that commercial instinct with with the clever use of words you, know, you, had, you had your Bacharach and David or Sadaka Greenfield or, or any number of those those songwriting teams who just had that perfect marriage of, of, of lyric and melody um maybe there's less emphasis certainly in 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 mainstream pop music on the words these days there's maybe a certain degree of dumbing down but I think there's probably just as many clever lyricists writing interesting stuff now as there was it's just harder for them to to come to the forefront Right. Um, before we go into the next song, and this is really taking a bit of a diversion, but um, I remember reading an article many years ago, first of all, in this book uh, that had been, um, I think, put together or edited by George Martin, uh, speaking to various different musical industry types, be they engineers or musicians or songwriters talking about their craft. It's called, uh, making, I, I, called Making Music. That's the one. Did you read the article written by Paul Simon about his approach towards writing a song about the moon? And what was the other one? Oh, oh the late, great Johnny Ace. Have you, have you read that article? Um, I know it's kind of a compendium of so much good stuff, isn't it? I think I dipped yes. into it for, I think, is Nile Rogers in there? I think I dipped in for Nile Rogers and Dave Grusin and various people. But yes, I don't yes. Know, I don't know whether I read the Paul Simon one. I, I adore that song, though, the late, great Johnny Ace. That was his, his tribute to... John Lennon wasn't it? On a, uh, well, it was. It was actually well. It was a tribute to three well, it, three Johns. There was JFK, John Lennon at the end, and Johnny Ace, the the original um, sort of R and B singer. I think went and shot himself at a game of Russian roulette. Right. So he found these three Johns who died in you know tragic, violent circumstances, and was able to uh, lyric them, but still bring it into a personal experience. I love you know the end. He sings about you know he was walking through the streets of New York at Christmas and a stranger came up and said, hey, have you heard John Lennon died? And they went to a bar to, to drink the night away. And he so it wasn't about Lennon. It was about him and how he reacted to Lennon's death. And just, you know, Paul Simon definitely had taken influence, I think, from Brill building writing techniques, if not style, in treating his songwriting as a day-by-day, day, um, you know, nine-to-five sort of, job and you know i imagine that there are some people who say no i must be i must uh have uh inspiration 
uh, who take horror at the fact that he treated it as a nine to five job. But, you know, this is a man who, you know, has gone and crafted some of the most brilliant songs of, of uh, pop music and it's, it's worked for him. And, um, but anyway, I, I, I digress. We're talking well, about uh, the zombies. Aren't no, it's an important aspect of songwriting. You know, there's plenty of writers who use that sort of organized approach to craft material. They don't sit, they don't wait for inspiration. They, you know, treat it as something that is going to have to happen regardless. And someone like Randy Newman, you know, has claimed over the years that he's got an office where he goes to, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, he sits down at the piano and he does his job until home time, yep. you know, and that's just the way he works. Right, right. All right, let's move on to um, the next song on uh, the Zombies Odyssey and Oracle. That's the album we're discussing. Um, it's this uh, another Chris White song. This is called Beechwood Park. Summer days just after summer rain When all the air was damp and warm In the green of country lanes And the breeze would touch your hair Kiss your face and make you care About your world Your summer world And we would count the evening stars As the day grew dark do you remember golden days and golden summer sun? So I normally associate songs of uh, summer love or summer flings with Americans because, you know, they invented it, the whole 1950s ballad thing and you know, the Beach Boys and probably Greece is partly to blame. It's not the sort of thing that I've normally thought about with British songwriters, yet Chris White here has made a very British take on it. Rather than singing about making out with his girl on the beach, he sings of um, uh, the air being damp and warm in the green of country lanes. It's, it's you know, That's a very... That, Country lanes thing. That's a very British thing. Um, uh, have I not heard enough songs? Are there other uh, British songwriters that you can think of that have tackled you know, similarly songs of um, uh, summer summer romance? Well, I don't know. I think people like Ray Davies probably. Oh, Water gosh, Sunset yeah. is probably a uh, quintessential uh, oh. example of a romantic British song. Uh, I mean, shame you know, on me. Yeah. <laughs> Mentioned Andy Partridge earlier, and he had that sort of very uh, sort of pastoral, romantic kind of pastoral phase with, with XTC. You know, stuff like "Love on a Farm Boy's Wages," um, songs like that, about the English countryside. You know, that kind of thing. It's look. It's interesting that you bring up Andy Partridge because I actually made a note here that linked him to how I feel about this song. Now, one of the things that Andy spoke about to you on the on the the uh, podcast with you guys was. Um, uh, he spoke about songs, the word he used, I think, was delighting him, um, where a song went in a progression that he didn't expect. You know, it's, it, we're not talking about, you know, your normal uh, roundabout sort of things where you, you know, all right, we know what chord's coming next. It took you to places that you didn't expect. And Beechwood Park certainly goes in directions that if you hadn't heard it before, you're not expecting. Um, at least that's that's how I find it. it. Certainly seems like there's a couple of points where they, I'm not sure if they're modulating, but it it, it certainly goes ways that oh I didn't expect that chord. Where are they going with this? And then they come to the chorus, um, and it's completely different yet again. Um, do you find that 
that's a valid point to make about this song. Does it delight you? Would it have delighted Andy Partridge? Oh, I think so, yeah. I mean, the it definitely is unpredictable, and there's a lot of interesting intervals in there that really enhance that idea of the Baroque English countryside that we, we spoke right. about before. Um, so, yeah, I, I think someone like Andy Partridge would definitely appreciate mm. the journey that you go on with something like Beechwood Park, uh, especially the, you know, that that blend between the sort of, uh, as we said, very Baroque sort of instrumental hook that goes through it um, to where the lyrics, t- you know, grew dark in Beechwood Park always makes me feel sort of, um, it, there's a slightly sinister quality to that as well, I think. Right, uh, especially with that, with that Hammond organ bit. Yeah, it doesn't feel to me like... Um, the end of a summer day, it feels some, like there's something slightly less positive about that. Uh, it's just the way I've always felt about that line. There's a hint of white shade nice. of pale about this song, I always thought. Yeah, as well. for sure. That yeah. kind of organ riff. Yeah, the the um, yeah, actually, it's it's interesting that you know we're having that we're talking about this because uh, I hadn't actually sort of like thought about that, but now I've got a picture in my head of David Warner, um, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Sticking his head out from somewhere, and he's he's got a knife. I don't know if you saw the film Time After Time with David Warner and Malcolm McDowell. You know he's Jack the Ripper, and just oh, now I've got this picture in my head. He's he's going to do something nasty. Thanks for putting that picture there. <laughs> we aim to please. <laughs> All right, let's um let's go on to the next song. Uh, this is another Chris White tune. This is called Brief Candles. songs that tell a different story in each verse and then they're linked up by someone something common thematically in the chorus two songs that come to mind uh one of them i've discussed on a previous podcast is uh, harry rag by the kinks from their album something else and another song by uh my favorite songwriter uh richard thompson thing called needle and thread this song isn't so much three different stories i guess it is it about three different feelings of, of from from three different people who are trying to rationalize over the heartbreak of a broken relationship there's not like a this happened this happened this happened it's just how each one of them reflects on the heartbreak of this this um, you know their relationship ending but it's for all the fact that it's supposed to be sad, there's still something a little bit happy. They take a little bit of comfort. There's that line, what makes it all worthwhile? His sadness makes him smile. They're, they're not, they, they, they get a bit sad, but they're also thinking about what they liked while the relationship lasted. Um, so is there any, is, do you think there's anything in that? Do you, how do you see this song? 
Um, I think you've probably thought more about the meaning of this one than I ever have. Um, to, <laughs> to me, it just it always felt quintessentially sixties. This one, um, right, and and kind of deceptive in a way of the kind of song that it actually turns out to be. If you listen all the way through, you know, it starts out a little bit like it's going to be some sort of Beatles clone, really, in my mind, and it turns okay. out, it turns out to be much more than that. Um, again, it's another song that takes you on a journey and uses a lot of poetry to, to get you there. But um, I don't know. I, I, I never really thought too deeply about it. I just It was one of those ones I always just love to sing along with the chorus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the musical approach of, uh, you know, for, for a while it's just, you know, Rod Argent on piano and Colin on vocals. And it sort of brought to mind someone sitting in a bar late night over a drink and just really not being happy with where their life's gone and then this once again i use the word i think in carousel 44 there's this explosion of sound in in the in the chorus the candles in its mind you know where he's sort of thinking about well but hang on think about the good stuff that happened during the relationship and take that with you yeah yeah for sure and it's got that great fade out as well yeah, yes, I mean, yes. The, the sort of reprise of the of the piano motif, and I always find that with a lot of, of '60s, that be it Beatles or Beach Boys or Zombies, the, the fade outs are really good. Like it's, it seems almost like the song's just getting going in a way, and 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 they just kind of leave you wanting more. Like they'll introduce something in the fade, or you know, you you just kind of want it to last like thirty seconds longer. Just need a little bit more of this, but you know, seems to know exactly when to to end. You know, I think that's a kind of. Um, a style kind of quite unique to the 60s you know if you listen to a lot of those sort of late late 60s beach boys songs you know you feel like it, it could go on for another three minutes and you wouldn't mind but they just yeah. kind of you know well i think the brevity of this album is also one of its greatest points as well i mean most of the songs are around three minutes long some of them are, are two minutes or you know two and a half minutes or whatever and for me yep. the fact that that whole experience takes place within half an hour is just fantastic you know you can stick it on and, and it you're sort of like, whoa! What what was that? <laughs> you know, it's, mm, yep. it, it knows when it knows that less is more, and I really love that. And it's so great because at the end of it, you don't feel too bad about pushing play and starting all over again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the kind of album that you know bears repeated listens, and that's probably one of the reasons why. But again, they probably know that when you're going to get into some of the serious subject matters that are on this album, that you don't want to belabor the point. Yeah. You know? Right. I think this one again is, is just another great marriage of lyric and music. You know what I mean? That the the music that fits the mood of the protagonist at the right points, and you know it's it's just that perfect combination of the two things. Yep. All right. Let's move on to um, uh, the next track uh, uh, on the album. This is uh, "Hung Up on a Drain." Rippling in the heat And from that nameless change 
hard to describe a, uh, a melody so that someone who hasn't heard it gets the idea. To me, this song is, I don't know, more about the arrangement. I think that there are stronger melodies on the album. Yeah. But what, for me, makes it work, though, are, once again, those those harmonies. These guys probably were all choir boys. Uh, and I, I get yeah, the harmonies and uh, the Mellotron. I'm a huge fan of the Mellotron. Um, so, yeah, more about how it's played and what they're actually presenting. I think, uh, and this probably comes back to what we are discussing before about whether it's a songwriting can be definitive or is it the arrangement that will please you? And I think it's definitely the arrangement here rather than the song itself. Yeah, I mean, when I said earlier that this is an album that kind of washes over me, um, Hung Up on a Dream is a perfect example of that. It's the sort of song where if you ask me to sing it to you, I probably can't, but then as soon as I hear it, I know it. I know the entire thing, and it's it's I don't know. There's something kind of ephemeral about it, but um, I I just I do love it as a as a piece of music. It is just spectacular, isn't it? You know the way that the guitar breaks out into those sort of slightly medieval phrases, and then later on it joins the melody at times alongside the vocal, um, and you've got those sort of interjections from strings and guitars and. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful arrangement for sure. It's interesting that you bring up the guitar because um, Paul Atkinson really, while I was sort of going through all these songs again in preparation for the podcast, it, it sort of struck me that they were probably going contra to where the rest of the big 60s acts of the time were, were going. They recorded this in 1968, I think. And, you know, who was, who was dominating? It was, you know, your, your Cream, uh, you know, the Hendrix experience, um, all these trippy bands and they're all guitar based. And really the guitar, Paul Atkinson's work is so subtle on this album. And really there were moments where I struggle to even hear it, but that's, this is one of, you know, a, a small number of songs where you do actually hear it. And even where you hear it, and even where it has a point to make, it's still very much supportive you know the song is king i'm not out here to show you my chops it's i'm here to just support the song yeah i think that's why the whole album really is is a lesson in songwriting in that regard you know it's it's all essentially about the top line the lyric putting that across conveying that the most effective way possible and everything else is, is secondary secondary to that you know i think it probably this album in terms of like the instrumentation and the and the style is probably closest to uh I don't know if you're familiar with Odessa by the, the Bee Gees, which came out. Yes, same, yes, I am. Yes. Same year. It has that same slightly Baroque kind of chamber pop vibe to it. They were sort of going in that direction around the same time. So I think that's probably the closest um, comparison I would make. Yep, um, yep. Yeah, good point. Good point. All right. Let's um, talk a bit about uh, the next song on the album. This would have been um, the first song on the second side if you have the vinyl. Or track seven if you have the CD. This is a, a Chris White composition called Changes. I knew her when summer was her crown And autumn said how brown her eyes Now see her walk by Peppermint coat Button down clothes Buttoned up high Diamonds and stones hang from her hand Isn't she smart? Isn't she great? I knew her when summer was her crown And autumn sat how brown her eyes
this song is one of three on the album that is a bit of a contradiction. You've already alluded to one, one of them, but, uh, this song, it is, okay, I'll say one of two that both doesn't fit in and yet it does. Um, it, it basically, uh, the, okay, so the melodic arrangement here is, is very different to anything else on the album. You were, you were talking before about Baroque stylings, but this is, I, I guess, in a, a dip of the hat to what the current fashion was. There's a bit of an Eastern feel with it, you know, with a, with, you know, Hugh Grundy playing the bongos and, and you get like the little finger symbols and the very hippie sort of thing, but yet it's still taking a very zombies, very English take on it. Yeah, I, I always hear a, a medieval element. It's certainly the chorus. I just I picture court musicians playing in you know in front of King Arthur or something. You know, it's, <laughs> oh wow, that's a great take. I hadn't thought of that. That's fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and then, uh, of course that piano. Uh, you know that sort of insistent piano note. It always makes me think of uh, Eyes Wide Shut. You know this mm, <laughs> the mm. score to that movie. It's just so it's slightly sinister, but. You know, I can I can see that sort of masked figure standing in the empty room surrounded by people, you know. <laughs> so, so you imagine Kubrick was a big zombies fan. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, look, another thing, like what we're talking about before with um, songwriters who very definitely craft what they do as opposed to those who, you know, take, inverted commas, inspiration and then just, you know, spurt it out. Um I think the same thing here is with ins- um, arrangements on this album. A lot of bands would tend to just sort of get into a studio. They've got the chord charts in front of them. There might be a couple of ideas as to how they approach it, but essentially they might nut it out and play it and bash it into shape until it sounds good. The songs on this album, but particularly this song, made me think that this is a very deliberate arrangement. It's so sparse, but everything in its place. The Four piano notes that you mentioned, Simon. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the bongo pattern. It's, it's a whole lot of stop start thing. There's no more than one or two instruments or one thing playing at any one time. The bongos and the vocals, then the flutes, or I don't know if it's a mellotron. I'm not sure it's a flute or a mellotron. Um, and then the, the, the piano motif is one thing at a time. And I wonder if that was like an exercise, but, but it was whatever it was, it was certainly very, very deliberate. Yeah, it felt very deliberate to me for sure. And again, they've they've made those really conscious efforts to reference the seasons. Um, yes, you know you've got those sorts of um, uh, they they call on you know strawberry clothes and emerald stones and and it's you know they <laughs> they're trying to make it sort of bejeweled this this album. You know, it's magisterial and and it it's filled with all these sorts of uh, sort of rich rich language that just sort of evokes all kinds of interesting things. I'm sure they're not the first songwriters to um, make allusions to the seasons in their song, but I still like it anyway. I love it when, when that's done and, you know, using, I knew her when summer was her crown and autumn said how brown her eyes. You know, these allusions, the different types of year, she'll be either magisterial or she'll be, you know, down in the dumps and sad or something like that. It, it's It's just... Uh, it's just extremely clever, but also extremely beautiful. Mm. All right. Um, let's go on to uh, the next song on the album, uh, another Rod Argent tune. This is I Want Her, She Wants Me. I walk downtown and as I look around me, all around me, the people 
like me Explain to you see that I want her, she wants me She told me to be careful if I love her Ooh. She had given her heart previous Love That Album podcast, uh, I was talking about, uh, with, along with uh, Juan Jose of uh, the um, List Music podcast, we we're talking about the Elliot Smith album, EXO. And one song that, uh, I ref- that we were referring to, we were talking about, was uh, the song Baby Britain. And I made mention that it sort of had a monkey's feel to it. And I just sort of had this impression that it had this... I had this image in my head of uh, Davy Jones wearing a floater hat, um, uh, a barbershop type suit, and doing a bit of a soft shoe shuffle to the to that song. And I see the same thing here. I want her, she wants me. Does that sort of have a bit of that that old time feel, the British music hall feel to you? Um, I can certainly see this that sort of link to you know something like the Monkees, and I can see a title like that working for them. I don't know whether it brings up music hall for me. I don't I don't know whether I necessarily necessarily get that sort of essence from it. But again it's got those sort of um intricate vocal arrangements on it which which run right throughout the album and the harpsichord sound. The, me- yes. the melody on it um kind of seems completely effortless. Almost like it's always been there and they just decided to come along and sing it you know it's hard to think of someone actually crafting these tunes in a lot of ways but um i always feel like that about a rose for emily just going back to that in terms of the, the melody you know it's just uh it's kind of once ambitious but makes absolute sense it's you know what I mean? yeah it's effortless but you know it kind of similar to to sort of mccartney's um sort of chamber pop ventures in like you know on revolve like for no one Elden rigby Yes, those kind of very vertical melodies with difficult leaps, but you've got like this this great vocalist who can just pull it off. Like it's just it's effortless, you know. Right. It was Argent who sang that one, wasn't it? I wonder. It was Argent on this one, yeah, yeah. I think. Okay. Yeah. It's it's really hard to tell because um, uh, the the voices. I know. I I think. Not that I'm criticizing the production, but there's something about this where I, I can't necessarily distinguish. Who's singing what? I mean, you know that you know Blundstone's doing most of it, but until I watched the um, uh, the DVD of the 40th anniversary, I didn't know that it was Chris White, and we'll come to this in a few minutes, singing the Butcher's Tale. Yeah. So the the real production or something, the, the voices didn't seem so distinctive, and that may not necessarily be a bad thing because they're all of a mind. They're all uh, it all blends. It's a it's very unity of purpose. This. You know, someone can sing and get the satisfaction that they're singing the song that they want to do, but it still sounds very cohesive. Not necessarily a bad thing. Sure, I love the um, that section that breaks out in "I Want Her, She Wants Me." That sort of uh, she told me to be careful. The the more bluesy kind of rock and roll feel to that yes. section. That always I always love the way that contrasts with the more regal sort of delicate pop sensibility of the album. It always feels a bit dirty that moment, you know. Yes, you know I. I What's come to mind? I remember um, uh, reading or hearing an interview, you know, from you know, back while they were still together, you know, with, with the Beatles and and um, 
uh, Lennon McCartney were asked about, you know, their songwriting. Uh, and of course, you know, as we all knew, the one wrote 90% of this and the other one would just come up with an idea to change something. But I always like to think about, um, we can work it out. The, 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 the life is very short bit was definitely Lennon. All the rest of it was McCartney. And I see that I told her to be careful or she told me to be careful. If I loved her, I see that as very much a Lennon moment and the rest of it as a McCartney type song. If the Beatles had done that song, it would have, that's how it would have turned out. Yeah. And people may well criticize, you know, the, the constant references that we make to the Beatles throughout discussing this album. But of course, they, they are closely related, yeah. aren't they? I mean, it was recorded at Abbey Road, they, right after Sergeant Pepper. I didn't they even use some of the instruments. Yeah. The, I think the Mellotron was left over from Sergeant Pepper. And they, I mean, their influence just hung over everything. It pervaded absolutely you know everything that was certainly what was, that was coming out of, of of England at the time, so it's it's sort of impossible not to talk about them. Yeah. And there's just there's, there's so many moments on obviously that that call to mind and make me think maybe a certain Beatles song might have been a jumping off point because they, they have gone on record like Rod Argent especially as sort of as, as Beatles influence. I think one of the first songs he wrote was was a total rip off of Please Please Me. I think he said right. So you know I think they were they definitely sort of had an ear on. And what was happening there, and that came out a little bit in. What yeah, they were doing. and that's not to say that we think that the zombies were in any way in the shadow of the Beatles with this record. In many ways, we think that this record surpasses Pepper. You know. Mm, mm, mm. Um, all right, let's move on. I know that you're a little bit limited for time, Brian. So um, we'll try to get through these in in good time. But no I'm got a time having having a lot of fun here. Um, okay, so the next the next two songs for me are. <sighs> Okay, there are there are two um, just brilliant moments. I mean, the whole album is wonderful, but two pinnacle points. And the first, you know, pinnacle two pinnacle. First of the two pinnacle points was Rose for Emily, and maybe after he's gone. And here's the next two, which is This Will Be Our Year and uh, The Butcher's Tale. So let's hear a little bit of This Will Be Our Year. just one of those beautifully optimistic songs that seems to counter the some of the darker material on the album especially the the track that's coming next but mm. um in fact that the track that's coming next is buffered by another uh, optimistic song isn't it afterwards but um right yeah, this will be our year is it's one of those songs isn't it that is going to get used at weddings for for years and uh it, it's amazing that a song like that of this quality can be tucked away towards the end of an album really you know it, it is extremely strong it, i think in the uk it's probably best known uh, from a cover by the beautiful south but um the original is is 
definitely for me uh, the superior version. I recently heard uh, a Foo Fighters cover of all of this, of all things. Um, I mean, given that Dave Grohl's got his finger in everything, then you know, I guess it's no real surprise. But I, I, I guess, yeah, look, I, I, I salute him for making the attempt. Let's put it that way. Brian? No, absolutely. Um, yeah, as I says, just the, it's the beautifully optimistic song. It's, it's as I mentioned earlier, I think it's it's one of those. It's just, it's one of the pieces of pure songwriting. On the album, you know, you could just strip away everything else, play that main chord sequence, and sing it, and it it, it holds up, you know. Um, and it's it's obviously again, it's 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 a bouncy kind of optimistic thing, but some of the chord changes, you know, maybe not what you would expect. Some interesting voicings and and sort of shifts in the sort of root notes and things. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just a nice, it's a sort of, I mean, they, they pull a rug on from underneath you with the next song, but it's it's sort of a nice, uh, yeah. Palette cleanser, I think you would describe it as on the album. Yeah, and it's just over two minutes as well. It doesn't really overstay its welcome. I think it could have gone on for another ten, and I don't think it would have overstayed its welcome. Yeah. I mean, look, yeah, look, I, I, I completely agree with you about this song being, um, you know, just uh, one of the one of the you know few optimistic ones, and I, I think it's probably the greatest song as a testament to the power of friendship. Uh, and love and support under difficult conditions. Uh, I, I, I don't see it as like a, a love song. This is just more, you know, you're, you're my close friend. Things are going to go right from here on in. Um, I just, I, I find the sentiment absolutely beautiful. And it could have been done in the hands of a lesser songwriter. It could have been done dreadfully, but they've, they've thought about this. It's just good old fashioned songcraft. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a just a, such a lightness of touch about it. There is throughout the whole album. You know, they don't they don't belabor anything. Not, you know, nothing's hammered home too much. It's just, you know, they just allow the everything's just allowed to breathe. You know, the tunes are allowed to breathe. Um, as I say, the so the, the brevity is is fantastic. Yeah. You know, the concision. It's incredibly economical. The whole album, and you know, they just drop in a line like "took a long time to come," as if to say there's a whole backstory there about. This relationship yes. that we're not going to tell you, but we're just going to give you that little hint, and that's all they need to yeah. do. It's that's great. That's almost a Lennon moment in that, really. It you is. Know, like the little sarcastic sort of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> twist on the end of the line. You know. Yeah. I love. Uh, I think what's personified of the whole song is that uh, that bridge, if you will, where you sing, and I won't forget the way you helped me up when I was down, and I won't forget the way you said, darling, I love you, you give me faith to go on. So this is almost, in a way, a reversal where this is a John Lennon song and Paul McCartney's coming with the bridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just love the way that bridge kind of flows back into the, the verse chords. It's just got such a natural flow. It's just, again, effortlessness to it, but if you actually sat down and tried to work something like that out to you know tie yourself in knots yeah for sure yeah mm. all right let's um go on to uh really the antithesis of this will be how yeah uh, and and surprising it comes from the the man who wrote the same the same man who wrote this both songs uh chris white this is called the butcher's tale some rag toy then in the heat the flies come down and cover up the boy and the flies come down in gum caught people mammoths would 
French Verdun If the preacher he could see Those flies wouldn't preach For the sound of guns Changes, this is a song that is seemingly out of place in this song cycle, at least musically. And well, I guess lyrically too. Yet, um, I think this brilliant album would be the poorer for its, for its absence. Um, I, I, I mentioned before about cinematic images, but more than anything else, like my favorite war film is Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but for me that that one sort of you know epitomizes you know, the the madness of war, but it really it really does. You know there's some films that pay lip service to it and end up just still being they end up being very violent, but no that was really very much emotional, very much the human cost. Um and this song um Rather than you know, sort of taking a a Bob Dylan approach about pointing the finger or a, or taking a third person looking back sort of approach, it isn't war terrible. This is told from the perspective of a very frightened eighteen, nineteen year old stuck in the trenches in World War One, and you know he, he that whole thing in the chorus, I can't stop shaking, my hands won't stop shaking. Um, it's it's there. You, you if you take nothing else from the song, that that scares the shit out of me. It's visceral, isn't it? It's uh, truly affecting. Um, it's kind of uh, astonishing that you know. I mean, this song was written you know some fifty years after the war by someone who wasn't there, but it's mm. it's as evocative of that of that era as as you know some you know a Wilfred Owen or, or Siegfried Sassoon poem. You know, it's it's got that sort of very real visceral feel to it. It, it and his performance of it it's it's such a uh, a committed performance it, it you know it's it really does kind of get to you it's almost a, a difficult listen that chorus is and the way the chords swell on the organ un- underneath them it's it's really quite intense yeah i mean it's it's hammered home isn't it by the the sinister quality of that pump organ uh, which yes. I mean, a pump organ. It's going to sound villainous at the best it's, of times. It's ominous it? sounding. Yeah. But um, when you marry that with you know lines like "a butcher I might as well have stayed," you know, simply because of all the slaughter that he's seen. Um, yes. I mean that that you know as a centerpiece of a of a sort of a you know baroque pop album is very unusual, but <laughs> in, it works incredibly well. And of course, he. he Offsets that with this idea of the preacher who is saying, you know, go fight, do what's right. But right. he's not actually out there seeing the horrors of war. He doesn't have to hear the guns, you know, as he says. And yep. uh, it's just, just fantastically powerful. You've got those vivid images, like, you know, the flies descending on a, on a body and, and things. Yes. It's just, I mean, it's just, you know, some really bold moves he makes in the lyrics, I think, in this one. Yeah. And as you say, the song is like, you know, only a little over two minutes. Um, and it, it, those two minutes, I think, are more effective than just about any war film 
that I've seen. Um, yeah. Well, apparently, uh, really. Sorry, I, sorry to interrupt. I, I think I, yeah, heard, I heard Chris White on something recently saying, I think he was driving while he, and he suddenly, I think he, he had a, a um, it was a real sort of, sort of interest to him in the first world war. He was kind of obsessed with it. I think he was driving yep. along one day and I think, I think it was the chorus came into his head while he was driving. And so he had to like pull over for a second to make sure he had it because he knew he had, he had something going on, you know, but, um, yeah, I think that it was born out of this very um, strong interest he actually had in that in that era. Right. Which is probably why he's able to depict it so vividly in the lyric. You know, I was mentioned. We were talking a little bit before about the fortieth um, anniversary concert of Odyssey and Oracle, and Chris comes out to uh, to sing this song with you know Rod playing his sinister part on the on the pump organ. Uh, but I, I mean, you know, we often sort of. Look at a lot of the, uh, those old older performers, you know, who uh, you know don't necessarily hit the high notes like they used to, or don't sing with they can't sing with as much strength, although they can sing with similar sort of conviction. Um, and in a, in one respect, yeah, you know, Chris's white, Chris's white, Chris White's voice has aged, and yet I think for this song uh, on the 40th anniversary version. It almost makes it better yeah. because, like, when he when he sings, uh, "I can't stop shaking, my hands won't stop shaking." It's, it's almost like he's not just singing; he's singing, "I can't stop shaking, my hands won't stop shaking." It's almost like he's trying to get it out. It's almost like he's trying to say it. And even more than on on the record, I get the sense that the character that he's that his body has taken over for this song is genuinely frightening. This is where his limitation. I don't know whether it was conscious of it, whether it was conscious of it, but for me, I think it works even better than it did on the original studio recording. Yeah, I think well, age lends a certain fragility to to the voice, doesn't it? So I think if right. a song like that, especially, uh, it's 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 really effective, you know. Fragile is a great word. That is completely yeah. That that's what he sounds very very fragile on this. Um, yeah, you know, people listening out there, if you've not heard the album, I mean, you're crazy. Go out and get it. But if nothing else, go to YouTube, type in The Zombies, The Butcher's Tale, and listen to this one song if you listen to nothing else. You should listen to the whole thing, but nothing else. It's just an amazing, amazing song. All right. Uh, we're near the end. Um, last couple of songs. Uh, this one, another Chris White tune. This is called Friends of Mine. World stays outside, that's something to see, that's nothing to hide. And when I feel bad, when people disappoint me, that's when I need you to, to help me believe. It feels so good to know two people so in love, so in love. They are So in the late 60s era where there's you know free love and sexual experimentation this song definitely 
seems very, very old-fashioned, yet it's almost as if Chris White recognizes this when he wrote this and Colin Blundstone sings. It feels so good to know people so in love, so in love. Uh, and this is basically – this is a song is a tribute to um, uh, all their friends – who, who, uh, you know, married and, and happy in their relationship. And it's none of the, uh, let's dig the scene and let's, let's have sex with whoever we want. Let's move on to the next one. It's this very old fashioned notion, you know, at the time, what would have become of, um, of, uh, fidelity and being happy with, with, uh, with their chosen partner in life. Or, or of I, course. Su- I suppose if you list, listen to him listing that long list of names, you could view it as some sort of bawdy sex comedy. <laughs> I believe the, the irony is that um, out of the eight couples who they list, uh, only one of them is still together. <laughs> well, uh, some of them might be dead. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was a long time. It was you know forty-five years ago, so you know there's a good chance. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, the 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 black humorist in me chooses to believe it's not. They all got to. Um, but yeah, but no, I I had read that there there were a couple who'd. Um, had passed away, but I think uh, one of the couples who were still together was um, uh, Jim Rodford. It was it Jim and Jean. Um, yeah, Jean and Jim so, and Jim and Christy. Yeah, because on, on the uh, on that 40th anniversary DVD, you see as part of the Zombies touring band that Jim Rodford is the bass player. And he was like a friend of theirs you know, from the early days. So I mean, it, when when you get Jim and his son Steve Rodford playing drums, it's you sort of think, oh, but it's not the real zombies. But in a way, it's you know you don't resent it too much because you know, these are people who are so closely associated with the with the band all the way through. But yeah, they, they make a big thing about this in the concert. They say, well, um, we mentioned here's one of the couples that are still together is is uh, Jim and our backup singer Gene. Take a bow, guys! You know, and they're celebrating their hundredth wedding anniversary. Or something. <laughs> I think it's nice though. I mean, I think it's, it, it exemplifies just what their attitude was when they went in to do that album, you know, to, to put a song like that on there during this sort of era of period of free love and, and all that kind of thing to, to celebrate, you know, couples, to celebrate monogamy. You know, it goes to show that they weren't really pandering to any particular demographic or they would, they were writing, they were writing to please themselves, you know, and that's, right. that's a, an important kind of, Less than a thing for a for a songwriter. Mm. Don't don't necessarily you know cater towards an audience. You know, write from write what you want to write about. You know, I think that's backed up by what they've said about the album, isn't it? That it was kind of a singular vision, and that it came at a time when they were kind of unhappy with things that they'd just done before, mm-hmm. and they knew that this was their chance to get into the studio and make a statement of their own, and they certainly did that. Yeah, mm-hmm. certainly mm-hmm. if their record label or had, had been you know maybe calling the shots in the way they had been a couple of years previously. I doubt a song like Friends of Mine, or, well, probably half the songs on the album wouldn't be, so Butcher's Tale wouldn't be on there. You know, that's about the least least commercial song you could possibly include. But, uh, but that's the thing. I mean, like a, lot of, like a lot of other bands that sort of went through this in the early part of the 60s, they started out as an R&B band. And like now in their touring guys, they still do a lot of those R&B songs. But this was, you know, sort of ditching that that whole thing there was none of the ray charles numbers there was you know none of the sort of tougher older r&b songs that influenced you know guys like them and and the kinks and the stones and the beatles and 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 the who this was this was their moment to do something different and, and they knew this was the last roll of the dice 
All right, we'll uh, now finish off with uh, the final song on the album and one that we all sort of agree was a, um, a great song, but one that doesn't seem to belong. This is Time of the Season. What's your name? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? Has he take us any time? To show to show you what you need to live. Tell it to me slowly. Tell you why I really want to know. It's the time of the season for love. So you guys were starting to talk about this song before. What is it that you think that it uh, doesn't belong? It's just got a slightly different mood, hasn't it? Slightly different texture. It's got that very cool kind of groove with the breath sound. Um, and it's not not surprising that it became a hit because it's a terrific song, a great record. But there's something about it that doesn't match up with that sort of vision of the sort of British medieval regal thing right. going on. It's more of an American, probably the most uh, strongly American influenced song. It's got that slight kind of soul element yeah. to it. And it was a hit in the States, of course. Well, so that's It was, yeah. 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 I, I, you know you've made it when uh, you're on an episode of The Simpsons and I think they use that song in uh, in an episode of The Simpsons where I think you know Homer meets his mother who's like um, some uh, old, old hippie activist and uh, he, he's meeting up with his mother again and they play this song in the background. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, really, as is, up until hearing this album, the only song of theirs that I knew was She's Not There. But, you know, this sort of brought home that, wow, this must have been a popular song. It's not one that I tend to hear on local golden oldies radio. Yeah, it's, the only, it's certainly the only zombie song I've ever heard pop up on the radio in the UK. Usually Radio mm. 2 over here tends to play that, that kind of stuff. Maybe the, the sort of dedicated 60s channels. Yeah, I've heard she's not there, but that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. Now she's really this sort of fits in a little bit like she's not there. They've both sort of got that funky minor key uh, approach, um, and yes, I, I, I sometimes wonder whether this was like an older an older tune, not necessarily early sixties, because you know lyrically when they're singing things, you know, what's your name? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? Which I actually heard Argent say, no, this is nothing to do with materialism. I meant, is he spiritually rich? Or, yeah. <laughs> I, I, heard which that, is, I heard that that was actually one of the earliest uses of the phrase "Who's your daddy," but I don't, I don't know if that's actually possibly. <laughs> I know, um, I think I heard Rod Argent say that he was that was maybe a nod to "Summertime" uh, by Gershwin. You know, um, yep. is it your, your daddy's rich and your, your mama's good looking? Is that the line? Mm-hmm. So, is you, you know, who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? It was a little nod to that. Mm-hmm. And I think I think he said musically, summertime was a was maybe a jumping off point when he started writing time of the season. Kind of, there's some slight similarities melodically. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
All right. Well, I think we've pretty much gone through. Um, we've gone through the whole album. I think we've pretty much sort of exhausted everything, and then some more <laughs> about uh, about this album. So we'll be back in a few minutes because we're going to hear now from uh, uh, Eric Reanimator doing his uh, segment, an album I love, talking about uh, the album Hawkwind by Hawkwind. So we'll be back after we hear from Eric. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two. I want two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. another album that I love, this time around the self-titled debut album by the band Hawkwind. Released in 1970 on Liberty Records, it's notable as it is widely considered to be one of the very first space rock LPs. Hawkwind mixed the sound of folk rock with garage rock, heavy metal, psychedelia, and pop to create a sound that built on the basics of their inspirations. And in a lot of ways, what they were doing was setting the stage for the 1970s with their epic sweeping sound, their embrace of punk rock thud mixed with fantasy and science fiction ideas. Let's take a listen. difficult issues in talking about this album is that with the exception of the first song hurry on sundown and the final track mirror of illusion the music is mainly instrumental experimental cut-ups and jams this was definitely not the norm for hawkwind going forward seeing where they started points to directions taken and not taken at least through the early and mid 70s 
their output would tend more towards the two singles from this album. While I dig the self-titled album, I would recommend anybody looking to check out Hawkwind to start with their next four albums and work their way back. So we're going to leave now with a bit of Mirror of Illusion, and I'll catch you all on the flip side. In the corporate mosque, good morning, I cried out. But no one feels the sound of a shout. And you don't hear me through the scenes you shed. In the dream world that you found, will one day drag you down? Thanks very much, Eric. And Eric will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about another album. And uh, we'll wait and see what that is going to be. Um, actually, I'll tell you in a couple of minutes what it is that we're going to be discussing in a couple of weeks. Something a little bit different. But um, I want to give many, many thanks to uh, Simon and Brian for uh, being such fantastic conversationalists on the Love That Album and just the fact that I could write you an email and you said straight away, why not? Um, and we didn't have long to wait. I, I'm, I'm really, really wrapped. Thank you so much for uh, bringing your perspectives. I really respect what you guys have to say. Um, just, yeah, a couple of quick questions. Who, so who's, who you got next? Your last show is Carol Bayer Sega. Who's, who's coming up on the horizon? We've got uh, Don Black up next. And he's the guy who wrote uh, Man with the Golden Gun and uh, Diamonds Are Forever with John Barry. Right. Uh, won an Oscar for uh, Born Free. The lyric- he's a lyricist. Um, and he wrote, yeah, won an Oscar for Born Free, uh, To Say With Love. Oh, yeah. So many, so many things. Yeah. Um, he wrote Ben for Michael Jackson, wrote the lyrics. Oh, really? Yeah. He, he wrote uh, a lot of musicals with Andrew Lloyd Webber as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, he's a terrific writer and a great guy. And... What have we got after that? We've got um, Harry Shearer coming up on the show as well. Nice. Of uh, Simpsons and Spinal Tap fame. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's going to be great. We recorded that a few hours ago, actually. So, well, yeah. um, I, I think his wife, is it Deborah Dobkin? Is that his wife? Um, I think she's, she's like a, a really excellent um, singer and she plays, she's often gone, she plays with uh, Richard Thompson. Uh, J- Judith Owen actually is... is oh, actually, Judith Owen, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. That's right. De- Deborah Dobkin's the percussionist, but yeah, yeah, Judith Owen's a backup singer. That's right, yeah. Um, no, so that, that's really fantastic. Looking forward to that. So um, just let the listeners know, how can they find your podcast? Yeah, it's available at sodajerker.com and uh, the full address for the podcast is sodajerker.com forward slash podcast. And you can get it also on iTunes as well. You can subscribe there. And uh, it's available on Stitcher too. If you've got that app, you can always listen to it there. And we're we're on right. we're on Twitter uh, at SodaJerker or, or Facebook, and that's facebook.com forward slash SodaJerker. So if anyone wants to get in touch with us there, they can. Nice. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. Really, really, really appreciate uh, you taking the time. I'll um, just uh, finish off the show in a sec. But uh, thank you so much for uh, being part of this and it goes without saying you're welcome back to uh, the Love That Album Kitchen anytime <laughs> you want. I'd love to have find another bunch of albums to discuss with you. It's oh, been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Like Elvis, Simon and Brian had to leave the building so I'm 
going to finish this off by myself. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful doing this show uh, with the guys from the Soda Jerker team and rest assured I will be uh, having them back on an episode in the not-too-distant future and I'd wholly recommend that you uh, search out the Soda Jerker on Songwriting podcast. Uh, a lot of wonderful stuff in there and pretty much as the expression I think we used earlier on in the show, it's sort of like a master class in... Uh, songwriting, how they speak with all these uh, great figures in 20th century pop songwriting history. All right, as I like to do at the end of every show, I like to give a bit of a quick shout out to the other podcasts out there, which I really, really love and have given me a lot of support and um, uh, are worthy of your time and attention so, start off with Paleo Cinema and the Martian Drive-In Podcast, both hosted by Terry Frost from here in Melbourne. Silver and Gold, the show hosted by Zom and Loafer, not for the faint of heart. The GGTMC, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, with Sammy and Will. The Mondo Film Podcast, hosted by Justin Bozung. Better in the Dark, hosted by Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. The List Film Podcast, which is not called the List Film Podcast, it's just called the Film Podcast nowadays. Uh, Talk Without Rhythm, uh, it's another recent one that I've gotten onto, and um, yep, a, a great show that is, a lot of fun. Uh, out of the Music Podcast, Sitting in the Bar in Adelaide, hosted by my good friend Michael Persh. Uh, he'll be on the show in a couple of episodes' time. Uh, the List Music Podcast, hosted by Ricardo, VK, Jenny and Juan. Uh, all-time top 10 hosted by Ben Eisen and a rotating series of co-hosts. And finally, the Soda Jerker on songwriting. Uh, my guests of today, Simon and Brian. Uh, and, oh, sorry, also one more should mention the Inside Outcast hosted by Evil Dave and Dr. Brandy Sexy Voice. So if you do a bit of a Google search, if you've not heard any of these shows, uh, you'll be able to find them on their webpage on Google or search for them in iTunes. Uh, you shouldn't have too much trouble tracking them down. All right, um, time for me to go. Uh, I should probably mention what we're going to be doing in a couple of weeks' time for the next show. Uh, I think for that show, I'm going to change the name of the program from Love That Album to Love That Film. So something a little bit different. It's not the first time that I've discussed film on Love That Album podcast, but it's always been linked to a soundtrack. I'm not going to do that so much this time. Have no fear, the films are both music-related. Uh, they're a couple of films from England from the early 1970s, and uh, both. I guess it really could have been all the one film. One's a sequel to the other. Uh, the first film is That'll Be The Day, and the next one is its follow-up, Stardust, both starring David Essex. That'll push the uh, memory souls for any of you who are my age. You remember David Essex was something of a bit of a musical heartthrob back in the day. And these films are, I guess, a, a bit of a... Well, they've been compared to being sort of like a British equivalent of American graffiti. That's not necessarily quite valid. I think it was possibly um, a lazy link because uh, they both take place. Well, at least that'll be the day anyway. starts off in the 1950s. And, you know, it's about memories of the time. And anyway, look, well, but, but there's still a very strong musical association with both these films with a great 50s soundtrack in the first one and uh, the main character trying to fulfill his rock and roll dreams. Anyway, so I'll be talking about that with the wonderful co-host of Silver and Gold, Dr. Zom. 
so I'll be looking forward to doing that show for you in a couple of weeks for what should be Love That Album number 38. And um, anyway, look, once again, many thanks to your company. Take the time to read some good books, watch some fantastic movies, listen to a lot of great music. Be nice to each other. Please uh, don't forget to post any thoughts or about the episode onto the Love That Album Facebook page. Uh, you can get to that at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Love That Album. You can send me some email at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. doesn't matter if it's written or if you send me MP3 voicemail. I'd be happy to hear from you in either regard. And uh, what other ways can you get in contact with me? I think that's pretty much it. That'll do. Um, once again, thanks very much for your company. I look forward to speaking to you all in a couple of weeks with Dr. Zom. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.